Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're moving through Luke. And this is just a great passage. It's the ministry of John the Baptist. So even as we read, you know, it's been 400 years since there's been a new word from God. And actually the teachers of God's word have kind of become misguided. And there's no real sense of power, no clarity of gospel truth. And then God raises up John as the forerunner of Christ, who begins his ministry six months before Jesus begins his. And so let's read these verses that tell us about his ministry and the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these Stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And uh, this good news endures forever. This good news is for you today. So I have seven points this morning. And we're going to stick with it. This, this whole passage is really something. And I want us to cruise through it. We could spend a lot more time on each section. But we're going to go relatively quickly uh, through seven points. So the first point is this. The context of John's message. Everything has to do with John's message. So the context of John's message first. That's verses one and two. And so Luke begins to speak of John's ministry by listing the rules of seven very important people. And these are rulers in the area in which John and especially Jesus minister. So first is Tiberius Caesar. He's the overall ruler. He's the Roman emperor, a very capable man, but cruel and wicked. And then Luke mentions four local rulers over Israel. We have Pontius Pilate. We know Pontius Pilate, governor of all the Roman province of Judea, essentially covered all the original promised land. Then we have Herod Antipas, who is a son of Herod the Great. And he's Tetrarch, which is a regional ruler of Galilee, which is in that Judean province. Then we have Philip, another son of Herod the Great, a regional ruler, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, which was east of Galilee. Then a man named Lysanias, who was Tetrarch, a regional ruler of Abilene, which was outside of the Roman province of Judah, but just, just north. So these four local rulers had this complex working political relationship, and they exposed to us that Rome had just carved this area up in a convenient way for them to, to better control the covenant people of God, and ordinarily by immoral self Seeking brutal men. Well, then Luke gets down to the spiritual leaders, local spiritual leaders. We have the high priest. It's singular. And yet there's two men, Annas and Caiaphas. And the singular just reflects the actual situation because Annas was the high priest, but then Rome deposed him. But it was always a family member of Annas that ends up becoming the high priest. So he's kind of the guy behind the position. So in actuality, it's Annas and Caiaphas who are serving as high priest. And so they exposed just the fact that the religious situation was chaotic. And furthermore, those in leadership positions weren't really godly men. They were after expediency and power and security. And we know that because Annas and Caiaphas were 
those in power when Jesus was tried. So why does Luke give us all this detail? This is more detail than any Old Testament prophet. There's, it's common in scripture to give who's reigning when the prophets came on the scene, but this is more emphatic than any of them. Well, there's a few reasons. First, just to help us date it. And so through this, you can kind of date where John and Jesus, you know, John, then Jesus six months later, between 26 and 29 AD. But it also stresses that the gospel isn't something that's personal and private. It's not something that's outside the real world. The gospel broke into this real world and affected rulers and nations. It also just highlights the fact that the gospel didn't come when everything was great. These were awful times. The light of the gospel shone brightest in a very low and dark time which is always encouraging for us, even our individual lives. And fourth, as important as all seven of these men were, as much as they said, they were nothing compared to John and especially Jesus to help this world and do what this world needed. As, as, as important and significant as they thought they were, they were nothing. And maybe the main reason is just to say those men said a whole lot. And in fact, it had been 400 years since God had given a new word of revelation through a prophet. But in those 400 years, we had the flourishing of Greece and the flourishing of Rome. We had Socrates and Plato and Cicero, and none of them could really help the human situation. And now God's word comes in power through John, and that's the word we need. The authorized word of God and the fullness of revelation, which is what this miserable world needs to hear right there. Maybe that's the main reason he brings it up. In the midst of all that, it says, and the word of God came to John. That's the context. What about the content of John's message then? This this word that comes to him. The content of John's message. And that's verses three and through six. So what is this fullness of revelation, this word of God that God gives to John? Like after 400 years, what do you think God would give as this fresh prophetic word to the forerunner of the Messiah? What would he say? I mean, would he denounce those seven wicked rulers? That would make sense. Would he rally Israel with stories of their glory days? Well, that would make sense too. I mean, at this point, due to the trauma that Israel had gone through for years, overrun by nations, untold horrors they had endured, I mean, all of them were fixated, well, most of the nation was fixated on what we need is a rescue from Rome and stability and freedom as a nation. I mean, we've been hurt and abused for years. That's what we need. But what God commissions John to do is he sends him around the wilderness in the Jordan River region with a message. And that message is he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Like no matter what else has gone on, that's what you need. That's your desperate need. When the kingdom breaks in, it's the forgiveness of sins, whatever else has happened. 
the people need to hear in light of the Redeemer coming is that they are dreadful sinners and need forgiveness and forgiveness is on its way. And that's our greatest need too, no matter what we're dealing with. Our greatest blessing from God, no matter what's going on in our lives. So John preaches repentance from sin. He preaches repentance of sin in order to receive the forgiveness that's coming by the Redeemer. For those who repent, he applies a sign and seal of baptism, which is a picture of the washing away of sins. And this baptism was unprecedented. At this time, Jews would baptize Gentiles who wanted to become proselytes, who wanted to enter the Jewish faith and worship the living and true God. But John's saying, now wait a second, you can be a child of Abraham, you need to be baptized because it's not just the Gentiles that are sinners. You are a sinner and you need it too. How humbling that would be to them. That blessing of the forgiveness of sins, washed clean. So what is this preaching of repentance? Well, John preaches a change of mind, a turning from sin to turn to God. Repentance follows from faith logically because we're not ever gonna give up our, fa- our false saviors until we trust in a true savior. John emphasizes repentance to stress the fact that this people are never gonna see the Messiah, never gonna appreciate the Messiah and his work because their lives are so cluttered up with sin and clouded over with a false view of what they need. Isaiah, quote, underscores this when Isaiah says, prepare the way for the Lord. The idea is the Lord's coming. Do you believe the Lord's coming? In light of that, recognize that your heart is a wilderness. It's a barren wasteland. And there are all kinds of obstacles in your heart. It's like your heart is the far country, as the prodigal son parable will say. Repentance believes the king's coming, believes salvation's coming. So it says, make the pathways of your heart straight, not crooked. Make them level, not rough. Get rid of the sin you're clinging to so you can embrace and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Believe there's a true savior. Leave your false saviors behind and cling to him in faith. That's what he announces. Well, then the urgency of John's message, the third point, the urgency of John's message, seven through nine. So John's preaching this all through the wilderness on the Jordan River, baptizing folks, preaching the forgiveness of sins, repentance. The whole Jewish nation was drawn to John. It had just been so long since God had raised up a prophet with such authority and conviction, a clarity of God's grace. And they wondered if maybe um, the days of Messiah were finally upon them. So, so they flock to hear him, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I mean, they're flocking to hear him. And John recognizes they're coming with all kinds of motives. He's discerned that some are just coming from curiosity Some are maybe doing it to monitor him. And some just want to get an external sign of baptism just to kind of punch that ticket or cover that base. It was just a thing to do. And so many weren't really taking to heart their need of real repentance. So he he warns them in the strongest possible terms. It's shocking, really. I mean, it's not sensitive what he does. He looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. 
Like, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, that's not a message designed to endear people to you, to attract them to you. And see, John's been living in the wilderness, and he's, he's all too familiar with the desert snakes of the wilderness. And so if a brush fire lit up, they'd, they'd slither out of their holes to escape it. So John's looking at the covenant people, and he's calling them a bunch of snakes like they're poisonous and they're deceptive like snakes. And really behind that, he's really calling them sons of the devil, the great serpent, and they refuge themselves in their little dens of sin. I mean, that is shocking. And so he asks them essentially in this, in this question, are you really going to believe the fire of God's wrath is coming and abandon your sin holes to escape it. And it's not enough just to get a little water splashed on you. You need to repent from the heart. This is a heart issue. And so John's speaking like an Old Testament prophet. He's laying it out clear for them in no uncertain terms. This is serious. He says, when Messiah comes, it meant salvation to the repentant and judgment to the unrepentant. And in the Old Testament view, as you recall those Old Testament passages, it always viewed those things as going together. Salvation and judgment went together. And so John can't see how Jesus fulfills all this at this moment because when Jesus comes, he says, yeah, that fire of judgment, I'm taking that for you. I'm gonna take it. Today is the day of salvation. Come to me for the forgiveness of sins. You have time to come to me now. Final judgment, I'm postponing. I'm taking judgment. You don't have to incur that. Finally, somebody's gonna take the wrath of God on your behalf. But the urgency remains. You either repent of the depths of your sin from the heart or God's wrath abides over you. And, and see, in particular, they need to repent of their self-righteousness. You know, some are coming to him whether they're saying it or he just discerns it in their minds and they're saying, well, we're okay. Like, we're immune to any judgment. Um, we're children of Abraham. Like, we're not these Gentiles out here. Like, we're God's people. We're, we're, we're in the clear on this. Like, we're right with God before, because of our heritage, our family, and there's a sense of self-satisfaction in a lot of them, this false confidence that keeps them from examining the wilderness of their hearts. And, God, and John looks at him and says, look, as, as wonderful as a privilege it is that you're a member of the covenant community, it really doesn't matter if you don't have the true heart condition of a covenant member. It doesn't exonerate you from the wrath of God coming. And so that's made evident by what he says, look, produce real repentance. And what's it gonna look like? The fruit of repentance. It's a changed, transformed life. I mean, you can't go through the motions, repentance and just feeling bad about your sin and going on about it after that. Repentance is leaving your sin to cling to Christ who produces a change in your life. So John says, don't trust in your biology. 
God can raise up real children of Abraham from the stones. He's sovereign over salvation. So here the warning, his ax is poised, ready to cut down the trees that don't bear good fruit. He's ready. And that sounds incredibly harsh, incredibly abrupt. It's like that hymn, however, praise the grace whose threats alarmed us, wakened us from what? Our deadly ease. That's what John's doing. That's, that's grace right here. Though it doesn't feel like grace, it's grace. The whole point is forgiveness is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. If you repent and believe the gospel and take God's remedy for your sinfulness, you've got a redeemer and you're covered. But if you don't, you stand alone under God's judgment. Even now you're alone under God's judgment. It's a word of grace, though it looks harsh. Well, how about the application of John's message? Verses 10 through 14, the application of John's message. So John has this stern, even offensive warning of the imminence of God's wrath. And you wonder whether the people are gonna turn their backs on him and walk away. I mean, this isn't the, the message that makes you feel warm inside. But what we see in our text is that John gets their attention. That sternness and that clarity gets, the, gets under the skin of the people and there's an awakening that goes on. It's a little revival that's happening in Israel. And so you have different groups that come to John, like, what should we do? Like, what are fruits of repentance in my life? How can I look and see if I'm just superficially repenting or I'm really repenting from the heart? Like, I wanna know. And those are good questions. And it's important to see here that John doesn't tell them that you have to, like wear camel clothing and eat honey and locusts and live with me as an ascetic in the wilderness. And John doesn't tell them, you've got to guard the ceremonial law more strictly and thoroughly. The fruit of repentance is really clear. And the fruit of repentance that he says is, you've got to start loving people. And you're just not loving people. If you want to know if you're really repenting, are you finding that something of the love of God is coming through your life? Are you seeing some growth there? Like Jesus would say the same thing. Over and over again, Jesus gauges the sincerity of our repentance by the second six laws and the Ten Commandments, which is all about loving our neighbor. And so, for example, he gives woes to the Pharisees. He goes, how, he goes, it's not tithing your mint, dill, and cumin. It's fulfilling the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Like, how are you doing? Are you just trimming your customs in your life? Are you really showing love for people? And so the crowds come to him and says, what does it look like for us? He goes, well, the fruit of repentance is sharing your clothes and your food with folks who need it. Well, then the tax collectors come and say, you know, they're probably way in the back. Nobody liked them. So they push their way forward. A revival movement among the sinners, the, 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 the chief of sinners. And he just looks at him and says, look, quit gouging people, but be honest and fair. 
Well, then the soldiers come. You know, maybe they're the ones that protected the tax collectors, or maybe they're Gentile soldiers. And he looks at them and said, look, be content with your wages and don't intimidate and shake folks down for more money. Like, be, be equitable. Do your job. Keep order. And so it isn't some dramatic or exceptional work. It's sharing with people, treating people right, serving people, all within your ordinary calling. It's loving people practically and concretely, even when it costs you and even when you lose an opportunity to get ahead. We don't, don't, don't use what you have to get more. And see, the only way to live like this, to dethrone, dethrone self in our relationships, is that we're living in faith and repentance. As we live in faith and repentance, Jesus gives us a fresh experience of the forgiveness of sins. Later, Jesus is gonna say, to whom has been forgiven much, loves much. And see, that, that conveyance of gospel reliance is the more I sense my sins forgiven, the more I want to convey that love to others practically. And so it's important to see that John just gives a sample of applications. And so we look at this and, and, we're, and we're supposed to go, well, in my calling, what does that mean for me? Like, as a student, what does that mean for me? In my friend group, what does that mean for me? What does that mean as a mother, as a wife, a husband, or my profession? Like, in my ordinary calling, how do I love people better? How do I use my possessions? the crowd, my position, the tax collector, my power, the soldiers, to love others. And that's the fruit of repentance Jesus emphasizes. Well, fifth, the center of John's message, verses 15 through 17, as John preaches with such authority, such conviction, and applies the sign and seal of baptism, the children of Abraham, this question arises, and it gets more and more intense the more uh, he goes around preaching, and it actually, it says, the crowd is on their tiptoes of expectation. And so the crowd, there's this buzz in the air, this, this electric environment, is John the Messiah? Like, could it be? We've never heard anybody preach like him. And so it's really beautiful here that John takes that question and he uses it to take the opportunity to exalt Jesus. Like, whatever you think about me, let me exalt Jesus. Because that is the heartbeat of his preaching. That's the whole driving motive for what he's doing. The king is coming. Salvation's coming in Isaiah 46. So John says, look, I baptize you with water, but that's just a sign and seal of your sins being washed away. It's not the real thing. There, there's one coming who's stronger than me. He's categorically greater. He's different. He's in a different league from me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie a strap of his sandals. And you see, untying the strap of a sandal was the most menial, degrading job. So menial and degrading that not even a Jewish, a Jewish slave wouldn't even be asked to do that. Only Gentile slaves. Like, you just didn't ask a Jewish person to do that. And, and yet John's saying, I'm so unworthy before this one coming that I would count it a delight if he asked me to untie the strap of his sandals. Like, I'm not even worth that. To me, it wouldn't even be menial and degrading. It would be an untold privilege. 
to get to do that for the person who's coming. I mean, what a, what a disposition, what an attitude. That there, there can be no job or task too menial and too degrading because all of it points to Jesus as I show love for other people. John has such a huge heart for the one coming. It's the heartbeat of his preaching. Everything depends upon him. And so why is he so great? Well, essentially what John is saying is what I anticipate, he accomplishes. Like what, what, what I display to you, he's gonna, he's gonna do it. So John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. And that really summarizes the effect of Jesus' whole ministry. Like it's what he accomplishes it's what the cross and the resurrection achieve for you. You get baptized with the spirit and fire. Now, ultimately, it looks towards Pentecost. But you see, why does he say baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, when Jesus is gonna pour the Holy Spirit in your heart to, to cleanse you from your sins, and that baptism is gonna be like fire, which has a pro, a positive and a negative, like, for the believer, the baptism in fire is he purifies you like metal. For the unbeliever, it's like he consumes you like dross from metal. And so there's this point of decision and you can't stay neutral. So verse 17 brings it out. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Like you can't put this off. So how's Jesus gonna do this work? Well, we don't know at this point, but later in Luke, we find out, Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. So Jesus has his own baptism, and he's distressed over it, and what Jesus' baptism is, is his cross, where, where he gets, baptism is all about being identified with something. So when we baptize a person, we're identifying that child or that believer with God. And at the cross, Jesus gets identified like in union with your sin and the wrath due your sin. And he paid for all of it. Like he takes the judgment, he gets consumed with judgment. He's like the chaff that gets burned up at the cross. And that's the surprising nature of Jesus' ministry. And it's because he undergoes that on your behalf. And then he rises and, and, and is accepted. His work is enough for you in heaven that then Acts says in Pentecost, he pours out the Spirit. And so when he pours the spirit out, it looks like tongues of fire. And so the apostles preach. And the effect of that preaching is people go, oh my word, I'm a sinner. Cut to the heart. I need a redeemer. And Jesus is that redeemer. And they believe the gospel. So that's what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the effect of the Holy Spirit in your life to give you new birth and forgiveness of sins on the merits of Christ. And to pay for all the wrath of God and to give you a transformed life. Jesus does that. Well, then six, what's the character of John's message? Verse 18, it's a great little verse, real fast. 
It just summarizes everything John said. It goes, so with many other exhortations, he's preached good news to the people. And like some of it doesn't sound like good news. But notice, we're saying, you mean brood of vipers is good news? Do you mean like share your extra tunic is good news? Is repent good news? He calls all those exhortations a part of the good news. Now, why would he do that? Because in the gospel, law serves grace. Because in the gospel, Jesus satisfied the law for you so it's never that impossible standard you have to reach to get accepted by God. Like Jesus satisfied it for you and then he paid for all the ways you disobeyed that law to where law is not the way you get in relationship nor stay in relationship with God. God's law convicts you of sin so that you can repent of it and turn to Jesus. And God's law becomes something that you want to obey out of gratitude for the good news given to you because it's the way of flourishing in this world. It's interesting to think, in the covenant of works, there was no provision for repentance. Like you couldn't repent. You sinned, you died. The whole deal about the covenant of grace is because there's one to satisfy the law and to achieve the law, you and I get the gift of repentance every day to confess our sins and rest anew on the work of Christ. It's an evangelical grace to you and deepens your love for Jesus. It's part of the good news. Well, finally, verses 19 through 20, John preaches and he preaches boldly and he applies it very poignantly to the most important man around the area where he was preaching. Well, one of them anyway, Herod Antipas. And Herod and Herodias had both divorced their spouses and married each other. And he'd done a whole lot of other awful things. And John just lays it out there for him. You've done this, this, and this. And to cap it all off, you just married your brother's wife. And look, that's good news that he preached that. Herod, see your sin. Confess your sin. Trust in the Redeemer to come for the forgiveness of your sins. And yet Herod gets angry, puts him in prison, and beheads him. And it just shows us that an unbelieving man thinks the good news is bad news. Because unbelieving man loves sin and doesn't love the Savior. Which also tells us that we've got a war within. That our flesh thinks repentance is bad news. Thinks repentance is bad news and their sin is good news. And so it's a serious stakes that we deceive ourselves into what really living a flourishing life is. John's preaching the good news, meaning you can be forgiven and you can walk in God's path, which is a path of wholeness and well-being. I'm offering it to you, Herod. But Herod ends up beheading him. And what it shows us really is as we speak gospel in our culture, it should not surprise us if there's some consequences in our lives because bad is considered good and good is considered bad. And the way of human flourishing, the evil ones deceived us. But right here, John is a picture to us because he's gonna picture Christ. 
He shares in Jesus's sufferings and experiences intimacy with him because Jesus's pathway is also his. And further, as John suffers, he suffers for the good of the world. And as you suffer for the sake of Christ, whatever it is, an illness, trial, speaking grace, and as you suffer to be faithful to Christ, the world sees you suffering in faith in Christ and says, maybe I understand why I need a suffering redeemer for me. And it spotlights the significance of Christ for sinful man. It's an encouragement really, once a reality that we're gonna suffer, but it's also an encouragement that Jesus considered John the greatest there was. And when we're going through hard times and we maintain our faith in Christ, it's precious in the sight of God. And he holds you right in his hand and he gives you a fresh glimpse and experience of his own presence because you're sharing in Jesus' sufferings on behalf of others. It's a beautiful passage. I guess the main thing in this for me is just that wonderful attitude of John. Let me tell you, I will do anything. I'll even suffer because to untie a strap of the sandal of Jesus is honor to me. And I'll do the most menial, degrading thing because he's such a sufficient redeemer. Might it be this case for us? Amen.